Hi, this is Breaking Brave, and I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. I first met Diane Bergeron, president of CNIB Guide Dogs and vice president of international affairs with the CNIB, when her beautiful golden retriever guide dog named Lucy walked her into the session that I was hosting for CNIB. And Lucy laid down right at my feet and started sniffing my shoes. I'd like to believe that it's because Lucy could smell the puppies on my shoes that I have at home, my golden and my basset, as opposed to the alternative of stinky bare feet. Diane Bergeron was born sighted, but after having been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at age 5, she became legally blind at age 10. Diane is one of the bravest people I've ever met. She has driven a race car, she has skydived, rappelled down a 29-story building in a superhero cape, and completed a full Ironman competition. Brave doesn't really even begin to describe Diane, and I will always in my mind see her in that superhero cape. Please listen to her stories. Diane is truly amazing. Here she is. Welcome to my friend and icon, <laughs> Diane Bergeron. Diane Bergeron is the president of CNIB Guide Dogs and the vice president of international affairs at CNIB. Welcome, Diane. Hello. Nice to see you. And it's so great to have you here. If it's okay, I'm going to lead with a story of how we met. Sure. Because I think it sort of defines the relationship. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was doing some work with the CNIB up at Lake Joe, at the camp at Lake Joe. And the nature of the work was all about storytelling. And so the day of the workshop, I had the, the privilege and pleasure, excuse me, of staying overnight. But the morning of the workshop, I was in the main room I guess that's how sort of a breakfast room kind of main common area, setting up everything on the tables. And along you came with Lucy, Lucy, your guide dog at mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. And there were a bunch of other people that were arriving and they were all in running shoes and leggings and running gear. And I was a little astounded and said, wow. <laughs> and Diane's, well, yeah, this, this, we have a deal that whoever wants to go for a run, we get together. I think it was like six o'clock or 630 yeah. in the morning. Six o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, because I looked outside, of course, and I said to you, Diane, oh, please be very careful. It's really still dark outside. And you, <laughs> and you looked at me and said, it's always dark outside for me, Marilyn. <laughs> That it is. That it is. And I realized how much I take for granted in my life with that one sentence. So Diane, I'd love to I'd love to go back in time and hear the backstory of Diane so that the listeners understand how you came to be legally blind. Let's just start there and we'll just ramble like we're having a coffee together. Sure, it sounds good. So I I was born with an eye condition and uh, called retinitis pigmentosa. And there's no spelling test, so you don't have to worry about how to spell that. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so it's what it is, is it's it's a degenerative condition. So it's it's literally like, if you think about your eye as a camera and you have, you know, the front, your, your eye, the pupil and so on, is there's the lens that 
is in the same as the camera. And then behind it, you have the retina, which is kind of like the film of the camera. Mm-hmm. And then when you go through then in through the optic nerve and into the brain with your your um, occipital lobes, that's where the film gets developed, if that makes any sense. It does. And I've never heard it described that way. And does that ever make it really easy to figure out? Yeah, well, for those of us that are old enough, of course, to remember cameras with film in it. Um, <laughs> and I qualify. Now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but literally what's happened is my retinas are degenerating. So the film is they, what's getting captured on the film. It's almost like the fill is, film is um, exposed or damaged. And so the, 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 there is no light getting into that um, onto the retina in order to actually make the image make sense. So as I, when I was born, I could see, and then the degeneration of the retina eventually got to the point where almost the entire retina is now pretty much non-functioning. And so I I actually went down to what I would call totally blind um, to the point where there was no light coming in. I couldn't see day or night, couldn't see sunshine, couldn't tell if there was a light on in the room. Um, recently though, last in December, um, and I haven't told you this yet. This is very exciting. I get to give you some news. No, I was going to say recently last December, this is the story I haven't, I'm not even aware of. Yes. We haven't even talked about this. So December 1st, I had, um, cataract surgery on my left eye for, for health reasons, because it was starting to create, um, problems with the shape of the eye and it was going to eventually cause pain. So we decided to, prevent any kind of pain and suffering in the future. And we had the, I had the cataract fixed. Well, the morning after I took the patch off to put the drops in and I could see the light in the room. And this is like totally new for me. So um, I started, I was kind of like, you know, I I was kind of like a, a curious kid with, you know, little shiny objects everywhere. I was turning lights on all over the place and um, then I started thinking, am I actually seeing these or just wanting to see things? And that weekend, I suddenly, there was this bright, really bright blinding light. And I called my husband up and I said, there's this bright light and I can't figure out what's going on. And he said, you're standing in a beam of sunshine. You're seeing the sun. And that's the first time I was able to see sunshine in about 20 years. Diane. So it's very exciting for me. So... I now have to get sunglasses. I haven't used those in a long time. (sighs) Did the doctors say that this could happen or did they even give you a little heads up to say, well, you know, when we get, when you take the bandage off to put in the drops, this might happen? Well, you know, he said to me, we had a conversation before the surgery and he said, you know, I want to manage expectations and, you know, what are you hoping for? And I said, (laughs) well, I'm hoping I'll get 20-20 vision and be able to go driving, but I know that's not going to (laughs) happen. Um, I said, I'm expecting nothing to happen. And it was funny because I actually said, if I come out of this being able to see the sun, that would that to me would be considered a massive success. And um, so the fact that it happened, we're all very excited about it. It's not, it's not going to help me with orientation. It's not going to help me be able to um, get around. I'm not seeing things um, like I'm not seeing shadows or shapes or anything, but I'm always very excited when I open the fridge and the light comes on and I can see the light and I'm like, oh, look, there's a light in there. <laughs> so, 
it's a very exciting time for me right now. Little things, little things are entertaining me, but yeah. I can't even imagine, Diane, but is it going to stay or is is this going to decline or do we know? We don't know. Okay. I probably, I mean, it will decline because as the retina, we didn't realize that there was any functioning retina left, but the fact that I can see some light means there is some functioning retina left. So eventually it will go, but I've been without any light perception for so long that I'm just very entertained right now. Like I did not know, remembering that I'm older. I remember the last time um, I even thought about a light in an oven, you had to turn the switch on at the top of the stove to get the light on in the oven. Now it's automatic. I didn't know that. So I opened my oven one day over Christmas and I saw this light pop on. Well, you would have thought that was my Christmas present. I was like, there's a light in our oven. This is so exciting. Who knew? I clearly have an old oven because I still have to turn the light on from the top. But wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so the progression really went, I was five when they found out that I had the condition. I was 10 when I went to the point where I only had 10% of sight left, which is what, you know, the legally blind sort of that we talk about, although I'm not sure what it means to be illegally blind, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I just sort of progressed till I was about 30 when I lost all my light perception. And now I'm seeing the sun again. Wow. Mm -hmm. I've read, I've done some digging beyond you know, being friends and colleagues, that the the toughest time for you to maybe accept what was happening to you was around age 16 or 17. And I read about Coke bottle glasses and white canes. And then Mm -hmm. the change that all came when you were, when you went to leader dogs for the blind and, and met your first dog. Yes. Yeah. I, it seems very shocking to anybody who knows me now, but I've always been outgoing to a certain extent and a little bit adventurous, maybe a bit rebellious, maybe I would say. Absolutely. Um, Strong-willed. But I also had this um, lack of confidence in a lot of ways. I was very self-conscious of what people saw of me. Mm -hmm. And so as my sight deteriorated, I started getting less and less confident about going out and moving around. And, you know, I'd get on a bus and, you know, you sit there and I would kind of like squeeze myself into a corner to just please don't anybody look at me. Mm. Um, But people, you know, you can hear them like they make a comment like, and not in an not in an unkind way, but you'd hear somebody say, oh, that 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 girl's blind or, you know, And it was really focusing in on the fact that I couldn't see. And so I was very self-conscious of that. Yeah. And then I went to, uh, I was, um, I think I was 18, 19, maybe 18, 19, somewhere in there. And I went to go get my first uh, guide dog. And, um, you know, I went off to Leader Dogs uh, for the Blind was where I got my first uh, number of dogs. And off to on a trip by myself um 
and to a place I'd never been, didn't know what was going to happen other, other than I was getting a dog. I was going to Detroit, which in my head at the time was like the murder capital of the world. I don't know why I thought that, but I was terrified I'm going to this place. <laughs> it had that reputation for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, but then they introduced me to my first dog. It was a, a beautiful little golden retriever male named Clyde, classic Clyde, we called him. And it was almost like the minute I picked up the harness and started walking with him, that there was just this sense of freedom. And then what really was miraculous for me is that nobody cared that I couldn't see anymore because everybody was focused on what a beautiful dog he was and look at all the things that dog is doing for that person. And it was more focused on the dog being the spectacular animal to help me and what I could do with him as opposed to focusing in on the fact that I was blind and what I couldn't do. And it totally changed my my confidence levels. And, and it just, from that moment on, that that dog gave me a life because that was when I really changed into this ability to go out and really fulfill my full potential. That's fantastic. He kept you safe and he guided you, but he gave you your hopes and dreams was yes. something that yes. I've heard you say because that was what you needed to, to get your confidence back. Mm -hmm. Diane, can we talk about the dogs for just a minute? I mean, we'll jump, we'll jump around a lot, mm -hmm. but how long does it take for a dog to become ready to go to a, a blind person? So typically a, a guide dog program has their own breeding program. So these dogs are specifically bred to do the work that they're doing for their temperament, their health, um, their size, everything. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things that come into play. And so when they're eight weeks old, they leave the, their mothers and they head off to what we call puppy raisers, which are like foster families. Yeah. And that's when the training starts. So that these are volunteers that take care of this dog. They do socialization. They take the dog out, get them used to public. They make sure that they do obedience with them. And they really prepare the dog to be a very well-mannered, well-behaved animal. And then when they're 12 to 15 months, they, they enter into formal or advanced training. Um, where they go back to the school, they get assessed for their temperament and so on. And then they go into the program and it's usually four to six months mm -hmm. of formal training. Mm -hmm. And the last month being more specific to an individual. So oh, okay. all of the dogs get the same thing at the beginning, right? They learn how to wear the harness. They learn how to walk on the left side, how to stay in the proper positioning in the sidewalk, uh, to stop at curbs, to find objects. They do all, that's all basic, all the same. Right. And then at the end of that basic training kind of thing, the instructors will see who's, who's this dog best to be matched with. Because it's not just a matter, it's, you know, these aren't widgets. So no. it's not first in, first out. It's this dog has a faster pace. Um, it's, uh, it's a dog that lo loves children, is best suited for 
um, city work because it really likes the hustle and bustle. This dog maybe doesn't like that. It likes to be in a quiet space, would be better with someone who stays home, maybe someone who's retired, you know? Yes. Um, This dog likes to travel, doesn't like to travel. This dog will do escalators or won't do escalators. So there's all different things. And then once they figure out who the best match is, then they start fine-tuning that dog for very specific things around that individual's lifestyle. Fabulous. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really... I even had, um, in fact, when I got one of my dogs, I had, my daughter was very, very young. She was still a baby and I was still using a stroller and they, my instructor, when they decided to match this one particular dog to me, the instructor then took out a stroller and started walking, working with the dog with a stroller to make sure that the dog wasn't afraid of having the the other piece of equipment around them and um, to make sure that the dog accounted for the extra uh, for the extra human that was a part of the uh, equation. Fantastic. Yeah. So how many dogs have you had so far in your life then, Diane? Oh, I'm old. I've had a number of them. <laughs> Seven, I think, over time. I've ha- I had a few that had some medical issues and had to retire early. Yeah. I think there's been seven. And what, and what yeah. age, like, this is hard work. For the dog. Yes. So what age do they, do you generally have the dogs retire? They usually retire between eight and 10. Okay. Depending on what responsibilities they do. So my dogs, I would say, would tend to retire a little bit sooner um, because I'm traveling around the world with them. They're going all over the place. They don't have a regular schedule. There's a lot of... um, uh, there's a lot of information that they have to take in. They, mm-hmm. You know, they could be on a plane. It's not unusual for me to fly to, I don't know, London by myself, just me and my dog, and have to walk around London, a place they've never been before, hmm. and deal with all of that stuff. Um, so there's probably a little bit more stress and and pressure on dogs like that, as opposed to a dog that maybe is you know, living in the country and going for walks every day. I understand. Just, you know, so depending, so it's between eight and 10, um, CNIB guide dogs where I'm, where my current dog comes from and where I'm working, we um, insist that the dog retire no later than their 11th birthday, because even if they're in great health, they deserve a nice retirement. Too. Yeah. They've worked hard. Yeah. yeah. Diane, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back to the daredevil, Diane. So I understand. <laughs> Should I get my cape? Bring my cape and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have driven a race car, skydived, uh-huh. and repelled down the side of a twenty-nine story building. To be specific, it was the Sutton Place Hotel in Edmonton. So, yes, I just—I mean, I am a sighted individual, and I have not mm-hmm. done any of those things. And so, first of all, kudos to you, but I would like to hear some stories around any or all of those things that you'd like to chat about. Sure. So I have I have a fear of heights. Um, mainly, I think, because whether I'm standing on the top of a building or whether I'm standing on top of a chair, I feel like I don't know how far that um, the ground is. So yeah. I just, I get off balance and I just have this fear of heights. So I decided that the best way to manage my fear of heights was to challenge myself to face that fear 
And I thought, yeah, I should go skydiving. And for years and years, I thought, well, I should go skydiving. Then my daughter was born and I thought, well, I can't do it now because if things go terribly wrong, who's going to raise my kid? (laughs) So I decided not to do it for a long, long time. And then I was going to Royal Roads University. I took the Master of Arts in Leadership program at Royal Roads University. And we were doing sort of personality tests and, um, you know, looking at how we trust people and so on. And they said that I did not trust people very much with my vulnerabilities. Hmm. And so I said, oh, well, I'm going to need to fix that. And one of my biggest vulnerabilities, of course, was this fear of heights. So I said, well, how better to challenge that than to do a tandem skydive and trust someone else, strap myself to somebody else and have them leap out of a plane? That's, um, yeah, that's... And- <laughs> That'd do it, checkbox. Oh my gosh! So yeah, so I did it. I did. I did the jump, um, and uh, it was my. I you know what? If you haven't done it, I honestly think it's one of the most exhilarating things, and it really does test your ability to trust somebody else. You know, they they're in complete control, and you're, you know, twelve thousand feet uh, in the air, and you're just flying and. Um, I remember landing, we, we came down, I ran over to my husband and hugged him. And I said, honey, I was flying. And he said, no, you weren't. Let's just be clear. At every moment you were falling, you were just falling, facing different directions. And it felt like flying. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first, that was uh, 2009, I think, okay. something like that. And um and then the next year, there was a fundraiser for uh, another, um, for one of the blindness organizations. And it was this uh, called Blind Behind the Wheel. And they were putting blind people in um, stock cars with drivers next to them yelling directions at them. And they raced each other. Oh. So we had so much fun. Um <sighs> Uh, you know, none of us really gets the chance to drive cars on a regular basis. Have you ever been behind the wheel of a car? Because I'm hearing about when you were about 16 or 17 and then, you know, self-conscious and getting uh, getting classic Clyde at age 18. So mm-hmm. you, you never drove. Um, well, that all depends on whether you mean legally or not. <laughs> I have never driven a car uh, legally with a license, no. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I have I have driven in parking lots. Fabulous. <laughs> and um and uh I did once uh um when I could see uh a little bit uh, well I mean I was legally blind at the time but I could see, you know, the lights and that kind of thing. Um I was I I will admit now because statute of limitation I'm sure has gone on it. Um my friend uh, who was driving had a a little bit to drink. And so I decided to drive home with her giving me directions. And uh, we decided that if I got, if we got stopped by the police and I handed them my CNIB identification card number, that they would figure that the paperwork that they'd have to do to um, complete that would be way more than they would want to do. And they'd just drive us home. (laughs) I love it. So the race car fundraiser, here you are behind the wheel of a race car with somebody yelling directions. And how did that all go? Um, I was one of the slower ones. I was very cautious because I, he said that the, the goal was to win the race. And I said the goal was to get to the finish line alive. Yeah, well, was yeah. the goal. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the first race I went very slow. The second race I was a little more adventurous though, and uh, and we had we had a little bit more um, a little bit more speed, and uh, we didn't crash though. I was one of the only ones that didn't bump into somebody else, but we had a lot of fun. Nobody was injured, and we raised a lot of money, and it was a great time. Fabulous. And then lastly, we need to hear about the Sutton Place Hotel in Edmonton, which I would imagine is another fear of heights situation if it's 29 stories. Well, you know, by then I had been putting videos of all of these things on, you know, up online and sharing them. And so people are like, okay, what are you going to do now? And I thought, well, just, you know, this was like the, the Edmonton drop zone, it was called. It was a fundraiser for Easter Seals. It was a great cause. And you dress up as a superhero. And uh, I didn't have, I had my friends, God help me. I think that having my friends dress me was probably more of a challenge and took a lot more courage than rappelling down the building because they put me in spandex and I was a little bit worried about that. But yes. yeah. So they dressed okay. me as what we called super blind woman. We even had a cape that we put on the dog so that the dog was on the ground waiting for me wearing his cape, waiting for me to come down the side of the building. Um, and um, of course, it was all filmed. And, and I, I said to the um, that it was going to be on primetime TV. And I, I said to the guy, you know, I said three things. First of all, I nor my beneficiaries are responsible for the <laughs> GoPro that you've just attached to my helmet. I said, secondly, this is all live and and I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth as I go down the side of the building. So you might want to keep your finger on the beep button. Fair enough. I do what I'm going to say when I'm going. And I said, the third thing is, is that if I'm partway down the wall and there's a, a wardrobe malfunction. I don't care what pops out. I'm not letting go of the rope to fix it. So they were going to need to have something to take care of that um, problem with blurring me out or something. So, um, but it was, it was again, amazing. Like you just literally lower yourself down the side of the building on a rope. And it was, it was um, a lot of fun. I, I, Again, recommend it. And it's great for a fundraiser. Great opportunity. I imagine. Yeah. I imagine. You are such a dynamo, Diane. And I'm going to, we're going to talk now about running and how running with your guide, Corey, has now led you to establishing blind iron vision. Right. So I'd just like to hear about that, whatever you'd like to say. Because again, here I am as a, not that I'm comparing myself to you, but here I am as a sighted person and nope, I cannot say that I've ever done an Ironman competition ever. So that actually came out of, um, after I did the drop zone, Okay. my friends said, now what are you going to do? And I said, yeah, you know, I got nothing. (laughs) Like I kind of ran out of, I mean, I'm sure there's other things, but it was really, I had run out of ideas and things that I had just sort of really wanted to do. And so one of my friends said, I think you should do a triathlon. And um, I reminded her that I was a couch potato at the time and had no athletic ability at all and had no idea why she'd come up with this, but she decided to come up with it. It was my friend Cheryl. And so um, not being one to pass up a challenge, I went on and registered us for what's called an Olympic distance triathlon because they have different distances. And she thought I was going to do a small one. So the, the smallest one typically is, a, it's called a tri-a-tri, which is 
uh, I think it's like a 350 meter swim, a two and a half kilometer run, and then a five kilometer bike or something like that, or a 10 kilometer bike. Right. And, um, I, you know, I said, I'm only going to do this once. Uh, so go, go, so big go, or go, yeah, home. go big or go home. It's Diane. I mean, come <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. So the, the, it was a local triathlon and, and, um, the biggest one they had was the Olympic. So it was a, it was a 1500 meter swim, <sighs> open water in a lake. Um, and then a, uh, 40 kilometer bike and then a 10 K run. Oh. <sighs> So, uh, and, and, you know, this was a local one, so you didn't have to stick to too many rules, right? I was the only person with a disability or at least identified as having a disability at the, at the event. And so we, um, and, and I didn't have any, I didn't know any other triathletes uh, with sight loss at the time. So I just had to make it up as I went along. So we figured out a, a belt and rope system so that I would be tethered to my swimming, my swimming partner um, and we would just swim side by side and use the the tether so I didn't swim off into the right. middle of the lake somewhere. Right. We had a tandem bike, which the first the first race I used a bike that we borrowed from somebody and partway through the chain fell off the bike and it's oh, no. quite a disaster. But and then and then the 10K run and I had a different partner. We all four of us did it together, but I had one partner for swimming, one for cycling and one for running and we all ran and crossed the finish line. I think I was second to last crossing the finish line. It was like they were starting to take down all the <laughs> all of the the markers and everything by the time I finished, but I completed and I was very happy. I well and and these guys all got a let. You did the swim, the cycle and the run and they only had to do one each. <laughs> well, no, they they all did the whole thing with me, but they each took a different guiding piece. Oh, I see. So we all okay. got to do it. All right. So um, I, I was, I was then, getting them off the hook prematurely there. <laughs> well, and then the next day, my friend Cheryl, who, the one who had challenged me to this, called me and said, that was great. You did great. I think you could do a half Ironman, which a half Ironman is two kilometer swim, um, 80, sorry, 90 kilometers on the bus. Yeah, sorry, two kilometers swim, 90 kilometers on the bike, and then 21 kilometer run. And you have to complete it in like eight hours or something. I, I, I'm sorry, but I didn't even realize that that existed. Or, or maybe I just never allowed myself to be aware that that existed. <laughs> it was just too painful. <gasps> Diane, so did you say yes to this? And I said, don't, I don't want to talk to you for a month. I, I don't blame you. And she said, well, that's okay. I got a month. And a month later, she phoned me and said, so do you want to do it? And by then, I was no longer hurting from the first one. So <laughs> I said, sure, why not? And so the next year, um, we signed up for um, uh, one of the big races that they have here um, in, in around the city. And um, we, we did we did it. We crossed the finish line. It was amazing. And then I called her the next day. And by then I was, I was 48. I called her the next day and I said, I'm going to be 50 in two years. And I think that for my 50th birthday, I should do an Ironman, do a full the out. Full. Yeah. So then it's doubles. Now you're talking about a four kilometer swim, 180 kilometers on the bike, and then a full 42 kilometer marathon. And you have to complete it in 17 hours. There's no special compensation for people with disabilities. You have the same length of time as everybody else. And if you're like 
a second pass, 17 hours, you're, you get a do not finish. Wow. Okay. So, um, and, and am I right when I say that yeah. that one, that one that you'd targeted for your 50th birthday was in Mont-Tremblant? That was Mont-Tremblant 2015. Okay. And um, as most plans go, uh, it went terribly wrong. <laughs> oh, tell me about we, that. Like, what happened? Um, you know what? We 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 were ready to go. We thought everything was going to be great, and we were prepared. Um, now, in saying that, a lot of things did in my life went wrong at that time. Um, I had a family member pass away two weeks before the race. Um, I had, um, I had, uh, gotten bronchitis. I fell and, um, sprained my, my ankle like five weeks before the race. So had to stop running for, you know, and then I was running on a sprained ankle for a while. Like there was just a few injuries and things like that, but we had, you know, we were doing whatever we were going to have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, two weeks before the race, I had my front tooth and this is quite funny. Actually, my front tooth fell out. Just um, and I had to get, I had to get a temporary, like just literally temporary glue that glued it in, so that because they were filming me <laughs> for this race with TSN, gorilla glue to the rescue. Because hey, I gotta look good for the camera here. I don't want to look. I was like, yeah. So actually, on the the beach, I pulled my guide aside. It was Cheryl at the time, the, the one who challenged me. I pulled her aside and I said, "Okay, look, here's the situation. I've glued this tooth back in, but there's a good chance that by the time we're finished the swim, it might fall out in the water. And if it does, we're not going to tell everybody that that's the way I started. We're just going to say that somebody kicked me in the face, and that brave blind woman is going to keep going." <laughs> that a girl. I love that. Absolutely. So we had. Luckily, the tooth stayed in, but it meant I couldn't eat properly for the two weeks before. So I was living off of, you know, stuff that wasn't very um, solid. And so I wasn't in the greatest of shapes. Well, yeah, everything's coming out of a blender. That's got to be hard to keep your 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 strength up before you do this huge thing. Absolutely. So nutrition was off and but. I wasn't going to give up. I was like, I'm going to do this anyways. And then the day of the race, of course, just to top everything up, it ended up going to 40 degrees with the humidity factor. So I made it through the swim and through the bike. And I did 21 kilometers of the run before I finally had to go off with heat stroke. I just couldn't complete it. And I was so disappointed because, you know, I had TSN filming me. I had so many people cheering me on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like there were so many people that had helped me train. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm letting so many people down. And I put on the next day, I put a Facebook post up and said, you know, thanks to everybody who helped me. I'm really sorry for letting folks down that, you know, I didn't complete and one of my friends responded to my post and said, let's put this in perspective, Diane. At the age of 50 and totally blind, you you swam four kilometers, cycled 180, and ran 21 in 40-degree temperatures while the rest of us sat on our asses and watched you do it. Bless her. <laughs> yes. I went, That's all she had to say, and that yes. puts it in perfect perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, you know what my my problem was I had only one goal and that was to complete yeah. to cross the finish line. I didn't set a goal that allowed me to be I still went further than I'd ever gone in my entire life. Yep. Yeah. 
but I, I considered it a failure when really I succeeded in doing something I never thought it would be possible in my life. Wow. So, um, but before I walked off and handed back my timing chip, I, I said to the, the folks, I'll be back in two years. And um, I spent the next two years just getting my injuries taken care of. I trained very hard. I went back to Mont-Tremblant in 2017. Um, that's when I was with Corey, mm -hmm. my another guide. And I did the race and I completed in 16 hours, 15 minutes and 57 seconds. Congratulations. Across the finish line. Yeah. So I am now an Ironman. How does it, how did it feel to cross that finish line. And I'm hoping the weather was a little cooler this that time in 2017. It was, it was perfect. Good. It was perfect weather. It, everything worked out really, really well. Um, you know, when I, it took me a second to realize that I'd actually crossed the finish line. Right. Um, I, you know, I thought we had stopped because somebody was in front of us. And then I realized, oh no, I, we stopped because we're done. <laughs> Oh my lord, we're done. So Diane, you still had more gas in the tank. You could have kept going. I was I, you know, I mean, I knew that we were around the finish because we were running down the chute and you know, it wasn't until um the announcer was standing beside it beside me and he put his hand on my arm and he yelled, "Diane, you are an Ironman." And that's when I was like, "Oh, I did it." <laughs> wow. And then after that it was very emotional. It was um you know, I had worked hard and it was so good to have the, the race director himself came out and put the medal around my neck and Aww. my finishing medal. And so now that's, to me, that's like, that's one of the things that I look at and say, I have accomplished something that the majority of people in the world don't, don't, don't do. And I made, I set my mind to it and I did it. And I'm so happy that I did it. It was so wonderful. Oh, that's a thrilling story thrilling story. Yeah. And I'm trying to do another one. I think I might do another one next year. I'm planning to do um, Wisconsin 2022 if I can, uh, if I can. COVID, of course, has stepped in and caused some issues um, with training, but I'm still training every day, still doing some form of training. And hopefully I'll be able to build it up this summer and into next year and then do another Ironman. I feel like I need to, I will fly to Wisconsin and I will help. I will help. I will wave. <laughs> I will cheer. I will scream at the finish line for you because that's oh, thanks. amazing. Before we leave the Ironman and we're you're going to have to come mm -hmm. back and tell us how we're all doing, but Blind Iron Vision, you have a website and, mm -hmm. and are you helping other blind athletes to train for and compete in these types of competitions? So after the Ironman um, was done in 2017, it gave me an opportunity to do a whole bunch of, of reflection, mm -hmm. you know, self-reflection on how, what, what are the different things that I needed to do within myself? Because I can tell you that to complete any competition, especially one as, as big as an Ironman, it's 50% mental, 50% physical. Mm. Because you get to a point in that race where you literally, especially for me in the run, because running is my is my challenge one. Um, that's the one that's the hardest of the three sports for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember just running along, and all I could think of in my head is, you know, I just I just have to go ten more steps. Yeah. I just have to go ten more steps, even though I've got you know ten kilometers left. <laughs> but it was just you can break steps, it down. You break it down exactly, and it's like. So I started reflecting on 
how did I, how did I do that? Like, how did I really manage to do an Ironman? What skill sets did I needed to pull in? Where did my head have to go? Um, what kinds of motivation did I need? And, you know, what resiliency levels and how did I become resilient in these areas? And so I really started to think about it from more of a, of a leadership type perspective. Mm -hmm. And I decided to start Blind Iron Vision um, because I wanted to be able to help people with their leadership, to help them understand that there's benefits in failure. You know, there's, there's, um, there's proper ways to set goals so that even if you don't reach the finish line, there's smaller goals along the way. And if you can continue to see yourself in those smaller goals succeeding, then crossing the finish line is one more goal, but it's, it's not, it's not the only goal, right? You can still succeed in other ways. So I started up Blind Iron Vision to allow people to understand that anybody can complete whatever goal it is that they set their mind to. They just need to get their strategy figured out and make it, make it um, happen through, you know, motivation. And so that's what I started as far as a, it's a, a speaker's thing. But at the same time, as I started that, I also um, wanted to do one other piece. And this goes back to my friend, Cheryl, mm -hmm. <laughs> who started me in on this fitness um, journey. Mm -hmm. um, she had done this race here in Alberta, um, in uh, up in the mountains called the Canadian Death Race. Well, that just and has we, a, a, a captivating <laughs> title right there. I know. I did check. Nobody's actually died, but I did check. Um, <laughs> it's a 125-kilometer trail run. And when I say trail, I don't mean like bike trails. I mean trails that were made by animals um, walking through them. So very skinny, uneven. Rocky. Um, rocky. Um, there's several... Um, uh, several streams and a river to cross. There's um, uh, you, there's trees that are down across the pass. So you have to climb over them or crawl under them. Um, it's just it's it's a long way. There's 1,700 feet of elevation throughout <sighs> this race, and you've got 24 hours to complete it. So um, I pulled together uh, four of my. Um, four of my friends with sight loss and we all got guides. So there was five of us and we, we were the first ever visually impaired relay team at um, up in, in, uh, in the mountains here in Alberta. And um, we took on the challenge. We didn't complete it in the time frame, but we did complete it. None of us would give up. We all just went out and did our parts and uh, and we were the first the first ever blind or partially sighted team to to complete. We called ourselves "Now You See Us, Now We Don't" because uh. we thought that would be a fun name. Um, and so that was in that was in 2018. So in the process of doing pulling together blind iron vision, we also worked with other uh, blind and partially sighted athletes um, to try and it was just really to motivate people because. It doesn't matter what your disability is or whether you have a disability or you don't have a disability. There's there's nothing that can stop you other than yourself. Wise words and, and words to live by. And in getting to know you, Diane, it was 
a couple of things that you said that really stuck with me. No excuses. And you are so much more than the label that people put on you or try to put on you. Yes. I admit openly, freely, that until preparing to chat with you today, I had not honestly thought about how COVID has impacted your world. There's so much that the sighted world takes for granted. And I am a prime example because I didn't give that a real think until I started to get ready to chat with you today. Yeah, it you know, it was really none. I mean, the world in general wasn't ready for the pandemic. Right. And so when it hit, um, first thing that happened to us, like everybody else, we had to close down our training center. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, you know, 25 dogs that had to go to borders um, and live in borders homes. We had everybody had to stop doing the training. Um, so our, you know, trainers were at home. Uh, we had work that we did virtually when, you know, we, we had plenty of work because we were still a very young organization. So we had lots of work to do that we could do from our home systems, um, calling our clients, making sure that they were all safe and okay at home and so on. But, you know, at first it was, well, this is going to be a month or so, and then we'll be back out. Um, and then it got to six weeks and then it started to get a little bit further And, you know, dogs have a shelf life. It's not, again, it's not like a widget that you can just store in a box and pull them out in 10 years. Um, They have to be trained within the period of time that that is optimal and so that you can hand them off to people. So the first thing that we we noticed was that this was going to go on longer than we thought. Mm -hmm. So John Rafferty, who is the president and CEO of CNIB and I, we wrote to all of the premiers across the country and said, you know, this should be considered an essential service. Without without the ability to train these dogs, a we've got a whole bunch of dogs that are not going to be able to be trained because they're gonna they're gonna age out. Yeah. And b we've got a whole bunch of blind people that need these dogs. And for every month that goes by that we're not training this dog, is another month at the other end yeah. that a blind person is having to live in isolation. Yeah. Because before the pandemic. People had their neighbors and their friends and their family members that would come by and take them grocery shopping or they just wanted to go for a walk or whatever. Right. Suddenly, we're all living in isolation and the neighbor's not coming over and the friends aren't coming over. And so that blind person is at home, not getting out at all. Exactly. So, you know, we wanted to get these these dogs ready. So we were, we're, we've been very lucky that most uh, provinces have given us uh, either, if it's not essential service, it's given us status enough that we can, um, they'll allow us to go out and do the training. And so things worked out very well from that end. Um, But of course, you know, still it's hard because Typically, we train our dogs to do things like go into crowds. Well, there are no crowds anymore. So our dogs are not, you know, you can simulate a lot of things. Um, You can simulate obstacles and so on and so forth, but it's very difficult to simulate, you know, a thousand people. So that's one area that we think we're going to have to do a little bit of extra training, um, you know, aftercare support with our clients in the future. But um, so we started training them. People started calling us with problems. So the first problem that we started getting was when we were going, people that did have dogs going to stores, they were getting too close to other people 
not realizing because the dog's not trained to calculate six feet. Of course not. They don't understand physical distancing. Of course not. And people were getting angry and um, blind people using guide dogs, guide dog handlers were calling us and saying, I'm afraid to go outside because if I get too close to somebody, they're yelling at me. No. Or in a store, you know, the dog, the dog doesn't look on the floor at arrows. Of course not. Um, so sometimes we go in the wrong direction and people were getting quite upset with us thinking, you know, or our dogs are actually trained to find doors and so on. So we would do what we usually do, find the door. The dog cuts in front of the entire pile of people, not realizing it's a lineup because they're six feet apart and butting in line and people saying, hey, hey, get to the back of the line. And, you know, so there was a lot of things like that. So we did a full out campaign. CNIB uh, did a, a full out campaign talking about you know, at this time with everything going on, we need to have empathy towards everybody in our community. But if people could just use their words yes, and let people know, I'm standing here. Yes. If you take two steps to your left, you'll be out of the, the bubble, yeah. you know. Um, so we did a campaign about that. Um, but it really came down to the isolation. And then the other thing that we noticed was with the border cro crossings closed, the borders closed mm -hmm. to going into the States, a lot of blind people in Canada go to the States to get their dogs. There's a lot of guide dog schools in the States. We have some here. They're very good schools, but there's more options in the States than there is in Canada. So a lot of people go to the United States to get their dogs with the borders closed. They haven't been serving Canadian students. <sighs> So our applications for guide dogs at CNIB, um, we, we, they just exploded. We, we've had more than a 300% increase in demand for applications for our program. Because the they, can't, they can't get across the border to potentially go to another spot where they could get a dog. Yeah. So, so CNIB guide dogs has accelerated our expansion of our program tremendously. We're now where we're expecting to be five years from now. Um, we're hiring new trainers. We're um, pulling in new apprenticeships. We're expanding our kennel facility to take in more dogs. We're going right now from, um, if, if we're lucky this year, we might be able to get out. I'm hoping we'll get out 35 guide dogs this year. I'm aiming for 60 next year. Congratulations. Diane, does this happen all in one one place or is it, are you scattered around the country in various provinces? So we have puppy raising schemes. Our puppy raisers right now are in Calgary, Regina, Winnipeg, um, in various places around Ontario and Halifax. That's where we raise the puppies. And But when they're done being raised, they come to a central location, which is what we call our canine campus. It's our kennel facility and training facility. And it's mm -hmm. in Carleton Place, Ontario, just outside of Ottawa. And um, that's where we base it. And that's where they do the training. Once the dog is trained, though, we take that dog and we match the dog with the individual, train the person with that dog wherever it's most convenient for them. So right now, because of COVID, we're doing mostly what we call domiciliary, where we take the dog to a person's home mm -hmm. and train them for 10 days in their own community. Um, without COVID, we would, we would get um, them to come to a hotel and we train five or six or seven people at a time. So, Diane, in this situation, how can we support you with your guide dog program? What can the listeners 
of Breaking Brave do. I understand there was a there was a pup crawl last yeah, year. We're but... going to do it again this year. Okay, yay. Yes, yes. So um, we have s- several fundraisers. So April 28th is International Guide Dog uh, Awareness Day. And okay. um, so we are launching on April 28th our pup crawl. So if you went to uh, cnibguidedogs.ca slash pup crawl, that's P-U-P crawl, mm-hmm. not P-U-B, um, <laughs> you can um, register for our race. And um, it's literally a 5K. So you, you register and you have one month from April 28th to May 28th to do five kilometers of walking, running, uh, skipping, crawling, I don't care what you do. Um, if you have a dog, take a dog with you. Um, and you've got the months to do it. And it's just a fun opportunity to get out and, and do something active. Um, there is a medal, I will tell you. We haven't said this publicly yet. So this is oh. it. You're hearing it now. Our, I'm impressed. Race, I'm so excited. <laughs> our race director this year is Carla, who is at my feet right now. Um, my golden retriever from CNIB Guide Dogs. She's our race director. Excellent. Um, and she'll be on the medal. Oh. Um, and you you get a medal for yourself, and then you get a little keychain medal that um, you can give to your dog if you, or you can use it as a keychain either way. Oh, I'm in. Yes. I am so in. After listening to your stories about the Ironman competition, doing 5K in four weeks, I think I can, I think I can handle it. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. It's, I, it's a great fundraiser, um, that we're going to be putting out there. We also have monthly donors. Um, we have a, a campaign out right now for monthly donors. So if you go to sponsorpuppies.ca, so sponsorpuppies.ca, you can become a monthly donor and we send information about the different dogs that we're, uh, that we're raising. So you can see where your money is going. Oh, that's fabulous. I'm also in on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, maybe you could get a Breaking Brave uh, team together. What a great idea. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Consider that a commitment right now. Um, awesome. I'm, I am I know at least five to six to ten people that I can call on that would be happy to do 5K starting on April the 28th and going for a month. Perfect. Done. Done. Diane, the one thing when I first met you, this this is going to be my last chat question, unless there's anything else you want to talk to me about. And I'm thrilled we announced the dog medal with Carla live. Hear it here first. Um, when I first met you, you did something that I guess I would have it, it then and still now considered very brave. You sat in front of an audience of people on a stool with, at the time, Lucy beside you. And you said, this is your one opportunity, people, that you can ask me anything, Mm -hmm. anything, anything you ever wanted to know about sight loss, about blindness, about blind blind people, bring it. Right. And I think, I think people were a little hesitant about, you know, well, I've always, I don't really want to say this in front of everybody else. But once we got that conversation going, Mm -hmm. I was so struck by the ignorance of all of us sighted people around life as an unsighted person. 
What's the toughest question you've ever been asked in that situation, Diane? Because I'd imagine you weren't, that that wasn't the first time you'd ever said to people, hey, go ahead, ask me a question. Yeah, you know, most people are really curious about how do you organize your life? Yeah. um, You know, so that you know what colors you're wearing, your outfits are matching, or, you know, how do you cook? And not burn yourself. You know, those are the kind of, you know, when people realize that I had had that I had a daughter and they're like, but how did you change diapers? You know, it was like very carefully is how you do it. (laughs) You know, so, um, you know, just people want to know those kinds of, you know, what kind of adaptations. You know, I remember when my daughter started crawling, I tied um, bells to her shoes so that I could keep track of her as she went through you know, through the house and so on. I could figure out where she was. And so just there's, I always tell people there's two things that people, you know, you say there's no stupid question, but um, I have to say there was two times that I might have said that uh, that might not have been true. Um, (laughs) The first time. Okay. Now I'm, now you've got everybody (laughs) super interested. So what are those two stupid questions without naming any names? um, I'll keep the names. So the first time was I was out actually with a group of my friends. I was much younger at the time. Um, I was out with a group of my friends at a nightclub and this uh, guy came over and asked me to dance. So I said, yeah, sure. Um, But I'm blind. I need you to keep a hold of me. Like just hang on to me and guide me. And he hesitated for a second and then he said, oh, okay. So he took my hand and he guided me through and we're like halfway up to the dance floor. And he stops and he says, well, are you really blind? And I said, yes. And he said, I thought you were kidding, which kind of made me think, why would anybody make a joke about that? But okay. And I said, no, no, I am. And he said, oh, he said, you know, you're really good looking for a blind person. Oh, no. I said, well, as opposed to totally ugly for a sighted one, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, and it was it was the first time that it struck me that that there's this assumption in some people that if you're blind, you therefore um, you therefore aren't able to you know comb your hair and take care of yourself and make yourself look in any way slightly attractive. attractive. And so that was the first one oh. that kind of made me go, okay, that really was a bit of a stupid And I take statement. it you didn't dance with this no, guy No, I actually didn't. Like, like, I told him to take me back to my table. Yeah, um, it's over. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That It was over right there and then. And then the second one um, was I was in a shopping center and uh, my daughter was probably, I don't know, somewhere like 10 months or a year old. She was in the sitting in the little front part of the grocery cart, you know, of the, of the mm-hmm, shopping cart. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was standing waiting for her dad to come and get me. Um, He was Mm -hmm. off doing something else and we were just waiting for him. So I was standing there with the dog and the, and the cart and my baby and, you know, the groceries and everything in the cart. And this woman came over and was, you know, looking at my daughter, my daughter has flaming red hair, like really bright red hair. And she's like, Oh, what a beautiful baby. And of course I'm beaming thinking, yeah, I made her. Isn't she great? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then was like, what a beautiful baby girl! And whose baby is this? And I thought, what an odd question. I'm standing here, and and you know, you know me, Marilyn. All the things that went through my brain right away, right? Like I, I, oh yeah, 
you know, I was like, I don't know, she was in the cart when I grabbed it at the grocery store, or, you know, I was the one millionth shopper and they gave her to me as a <laughs> gift. Um, you know, like all these things are going through my head to say, but I was a good girl and I said, oh, it's my daughter. It's, um, she's mine, you know? And the woman said, really, you can have children? And, and I was, I was shocked. I was like, just because I'm blind, she made the assumption that I couldn't have children. Oh, my goodness. And, and I said, yeah. well, yeah, I can have children. That's not the part of my body that's broken. <laughs> so I'm perfectly <laughs> fine. I'm capable of having children, yes. So so it's those <sighs> kinds of things that, you know, I I always say to people, this is, if you have a question to ask, make sure that, you, that the person you're asking is comfortable with you asking. Yeah. But it's better to know than to make the assumption because most people don't think about if you look back at some of the things I did and I think you and I talked about I did stand up comedy for a while um yeah. I I was a chicken farmer remember I used to chase chickens around and and again something that people were like why would you do that which I still question myself quite often why <laughs> I would ever want to be around chickens but but you know people assume they make assumptions blind person can't do yeah. this and, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that people need to ask the questions, ask what people are capable of instead of assuming that they're not. Absolutely. Yeah. The day, that day when you were sitting on that stool with Lucy beside you and, and asking for anybody to ask you a question, I remember this story to this day very clearly. Somebody asked you, when in your daughter's life were you the most afraid and the answer that you gave was, I think it might have been Sherway Gardens, but it was some place, some mall, where there was a squat and gobble, as I like to call them, mm -hmm. and there's a sit down and mm -hmm. everyone brings their trays. And your daughter said, can I take the trays to the garbage can? Mm -hmm. And you said, yes. Yeah. So she walked away from you. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, had no way to see her and that there was somebody close by that was very kind who was saying she's dropped it in the garbage now she's on her way back to give you some reassurances that she hadn't wandered off anywhere yeah it's one of the things that I really struggled with as a blind parent um I never wanted to let that poor kid go you know I wanted her to be touching me all the time because as long yeah. as she was within my arm's reach I could mm -hmm. protect her and at the time that that happened, she was only, I'm going to say, three years old, maybe. Oh, I thought she was older. No, wow. she was tiny. She was, you know, she was one of these kids that would just really like to help a lot. And, and, and she was like, Mom, I'll take this to the garbage. And I just, you know, I quickly had to make the decision to let mm -hmm. her go do that, knowing that I, she was going to be out of my control. Yeah. And I must have had the look of fear on my face the minute she walked away. And mm -hmm. there was somebody nearby that um, said, she's okay, I'm watching her. And that meant so much to me because, you know, kids go missing. Things happen. She could have hurt herself. Oh, yeah. Anything could have happened. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, so, and as a yeah. mother, you, you run every single scenario through your head in a split second. Absolutely. Absolutely. She used to, when she got a little bit older and she used to go bike riding in the neighborhood, um, she caught on to me. Knew, I mean, you could, kids are very intuitive. She knew that I was always afraid. And she's like, oh, mom, I'm going to go out riding my bike. And I say, okay, here's the, 
you know, here's the areas that you can ride your bike in and, you know, how long you can be gone. And I would send her off with her bike. And then I would go sit on the front step with my cup of coffee or I'd, you know, get out and start doing the gardening. But I was always out front listening for any bike coming by. And she got to the point, she'd ride by and she'd go, I'm not dead yet, mom. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) Like, all right, thanks for letting me know. And off she'd go again and she'd come back again and check in with me to let me know that she was still alive. Diane, you are one of the bravest people I've ever met. And I'm, I am honored to know you. And it has been such, such, such a delight chatting with you today. Thank you. And back at you. I'm going to try and run 5K starting in the pup crawl on the 28th of April. And that's nothing close to with some of the things you've done. But I will always remember your just take 10 more steps and then just take 10 more steps. Are there any parting words that you have for the world out there listening, Diane? Because you were such you were such an inspiration. You know, um, one of my one of the people that I really wish in my lifetime I would have had an opportunity to meet, which of course I couldn't, is Helen Keller. Mm. Um, she's got so many words of wisdom. Um, but one of the ones that she says, uh, one of my favorite Helen Keller quotes is, one should never creep when one feels the impulse to soar. And I just, I just hope that everybody that has an opportunity to, um, to listen to, the, to your podcast can understand that they are really, really limited by themselves. And if they would just not creep, then they'd have that ability to soar and to reach those goals. So I think that that's, those are wise words of Helen Keller's that people should live by. And I will. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diane. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.